0: Hey there, Prestige Heads. It's Danny. So as you know, last week, we shared the first episode of the new investigative series, Shoot the Messenger. Uh, and then as you probably remember, it's a story about surveillance. And that's a topic we're trying to dive a little bit deeper in, as I said, because of course, surveillance is becoming more prevalent and a more pressing issue with all the talk about TikTok and facial recognition software. It's a really important topic and has even become more so if that's possible in the last uh, couple of months. So in the first episode, of Shoot the Messenger that we played last week, Friends of the Pod, Nando Vila and Rose Reed, two of my favorite people in the world, took us down the terrifying rabbit hole of what really happened to the murdered Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. They interviewed his widow, one of several people in Khashoggi's inner circle who was infected, her her technology was actually infected, with Pegasus spyware. Now, Khashoggi's wife had this sophisticated military-grade spyware on her phone, this is crazy, for three years including the last few months of her husband, Jamel Khashoggi's life. No matter how cautious he tried to be, it was already too late. And in fact, uh, good news for you all, we got such great feedback on episode one that we decided that prestige heads, of course, my favorite people, deserve episode two. And this second episode digs deeper into how the Washington Post and Citizen Lab even discovered Khashoggi's widow. This episode really examines how Pegasus works and how Citizen Lab came to discover Pegasus years ago. Now, just to remind you all, this is the second episode of a 10-part series, and you should definitely subscribe to the rest of them. I've listened to all of those that have been released, and they're excellent. Follow it, like it, rate it, whatever you do to our podcast, do to their podcast. And in fact, you can, as always, get Shoot the Messenger anywhere that you get podcasts. So without further ado, here is the second episode of Shoot the Messenger.  —
1: More than four years have passed since journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, in October of 2018. Khashoggi's phones are still with Turkish authorities. In our last episode, we learned how Khashoggi's wife, Hanan Alater, discovered she had been targeted, tracked, and spied on by military-grade spyware on her phone. —— she was not the only one.
2: We start with this CNN-exclusive new insight now into the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi and one of the unanswered questions,
3: why was he killed?
4: The hacking of my phone played uh, a major role on uh, what happened to Jamal. I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry to say that.
3: Omar Abdulaziz was a close friend of Jamal Khashoggi's. Omar is a vocal critic of Saudi Arabia's human rights abuses and now lives in Canada, where he was granted asylum. More than 400 messages between Omar and Jamal Khashoggi were compromised.
5: We all carry our cell phones everywhere. And our cell phones carry our digital exhaust with them. And having that turned on you, it's so much more powerful than the tools that law enforcement and
1: spies have used before. Dana Priest covers national security for the Washington Post, the same newspaper where Khashoggi worked before he was killed. Dana Priest is part of the Pegasus Project, a coalition of journalists working together to identify targets who have been hacked by Pegasus spyware. The Pegasus Project obtained a list of thousands of phone numbers that were targeted with Pegasus spyware. Dana went through this database of phone numbers to find if anyone was connected to her colleague, Jamal Khashoggi. She discovered a number that belonged to Hanan Alater, who married Khashoggi in an unrecorded religious ceremony outside of D.C. and wasn't previously known to many of his colleagues. And then who I discovered
5: had been detained and mistreated, harassed, intimidated by the Emiratis. So she reveals this big story that nobody knew at the time, which was that the Emiratis, it seemed, were tracking her to track him. We got her phones. It showed that she had been targeted. It was an Android, and it was rather old, so it was hard to find any traces of Pegasus on that particular type of phone. In the beginning, they didn't know who had used Pegasus to target her. And it was very eerie because here's this woman that has potentially so much evidence to share in her devices about Jamal's travels and who might have been tracking him and who might have been complicit with the Saudis. So I took her devices to a second group that does a lot of forensics, Citizen Lab. A lot
2: of the stuff that I do in this research is trying to understand, given one instance or given one example of an attack, can we trace that further to other instances, to other examples and uh, other
3: countries as well? Bill Marzak is a senior research fellow at Citizen Lab. He confirmed that Pegasus was on Hanan's phone.
6: I have a big feeling there is something also in my husband's phone If I have the evidence to me, what about him?
1: Now that Hanan had been identified, Bill and Citizen Lab, together with reporters from the Pegasus Project, like Dana Priest, could find others whose phones have been infected with Pegasus. I got kind of obsessed with this because we know
5: the Saudis did it. So what else do you need to know? And I just thought, we need to know everything because we can know the Saudis did it, but who helped them do it? The question about whether he could have been murdered without Pegasus is is one way to ask the question, but the other way is who are these people making decisions that lead to the murder and hacking to death of this very gentle, (laughs) sensitive man who was trying to bring more freedom of expression to his country? And I just kept saying, what in the hell could have happened in there? We pieced
2: together what happened almost like a whodunit. Given one instance of an attack,
6: can we trace that further to other countries as well? Regarding the spying and the bagages, we did not know. They did track him through me because they knew I'm the closest one to him.
1: This is Shoot the Messenger. I'm Rose Reed.
3: I'm Nando Vila. Every season, we investigate one international news story. You may have heard the headlines. This is the Deep Dive. This first season, we examine the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi and his inner circle that has the world's most sophisticated military-grade spyware confirmed on their phones. It's called Pegasus. How did this spyware come to be? How does it work? And how vulnerable are you?
1: Over the course of 10 episodes, we're doing a special partnership with the Committee to Protect Journalists on espionage, murder, and Pegasus spyware. In our last episode, we examined the life, death, and betrayal of Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi's wife, Hanan Alater, discovered she had Pegasus on her phone for three years, including the last five months of Jamal Khashoggi's life. She was just one person in Jamal Khashoggi's inner circle to have Pegasus confirmed on their phones. Hanan
5: is the smoking gun. They did track him through
6: me because they know I'm the closest one to him. It was full access to the
7: phone. This was the most sophisticated mobile spyware on the market. You have to go back
8: to, you know, getting a copy of Pegasus, reverse engineering it.
1: Thank you for looking for the truth. This is Episode 2, Discovering Pegasus, a story told in two entangled chapters, Omar Abdulaziz and Ahmed Mansour. Chapter 1, Jamal Khashoggi's Inner Circle, Omar Abdulaziz.
3: After Hanan Alater was told that she had Pegasus on her phone the last five months of Jamal Khashoggi's life, she started to think back on those months with a different lens. She examined the questions asked of her by the UAE intelligence officers who detained her and questioned her overnight. She thought back on their questions about Jamal Khashoggi, asking who he worked with and what he was working on.
6: They were accusing him. He have a strong network. Jamal, he really have a network. They are active, uh, they outspoken and they very well educate but majority of them is not from gulf actually majority of them is egyptian but he did not have a a network from gulf dissident to change the rule he was against this he had to be categorized as a dissident the way they they behave and the way they believe it make me believe they was using this technology the biggest to go through everybody who is in the same platform like Jamal. This is what I believe.
1: After Khashoggi was murdered, Saudi officials questioned and even detained some of those who seemed to have a connection, even if loosely, with Jamal Khashoggi.
5: It looks like the Saudis picked up, and in this case detained for months and months, people who were in contact with some of the people that Jamal was in contact with. So you're seeing this kind of ripple effect. Jamal's in the middle and then there's people who followed people who followed Jamal. They took the phones and they looked at the phones and they looked at who else is communicating with the friends around Jamal and they considered them suspicious as well.
8: A lot of this industry really took off after the Arab Spring. So with the Arab Spring, you know, we all looked at this and said, oh, there's a Twitter revolution, Facebook revolution. Everybody's using mobile phones to organize. Well, the dictators and despots around the world were like, how do we prevent this from ever happening? And waiting in the wings was a very eager private sector complex, waiting to service them. So I'm Ron Deibert. I'm a professor of political science. I'm also the founder and director of the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy in Canada.
3: Ron Deibert, the founder of Citizen Lab, is an expert in cyber espionage and digital surveillance. He has been reverse engineering espionage efforts targeting dissidents for more than two decades.
8: So the idea is that we're like a digital watchdog. We're like a CSI of human rights. The typical approach I think most people take to that is they see it all as, a, as something happening out there, like a world that they're observing, almost like in a test tube environment. And it's like we've crossed through that curtain and, and really exposed government surveillance.
1: After the Arab Spring, Saudi Arabia cracked down on Twitter and Twitter users. A large part of Saudi's population is active on Twitter. But Twitter in Saudi Arabia is heavily surveilled. Because you have to have a phone number linked to your Twitter account, many Saudis who live inside the kingdom are careful with what they post. Posting criticism on Twitter of the Saudi government can be punishable with jail time.
8: Governments, especially ones like Saudi Arabia, don't always see other governments as the main threat. They see exiled opposition or dissidents abroad as their main threat.
3: That's Omar Abdulaziz. Opening his YouTube show, he regularly hosts commenting on Saudi politics. Omar Abdulaziz moved from Saudi Arabia to Canada in 2009 to study English at McGill University in Montreal. Omar was far away from home when the Arab Spring protests erupted across North Africa and the Gulf. And he started tweeting and posting videos commenting on the uprisings, the backlash, and the fallout. Omar developed a large following across social media, on Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, and now has more than half a million Twitter followers.
1: As Omar's following grew, and with the new crown prince and power in Saudi Arabia, he became a target of intimidation. In 2016, two Saudi officials arrived in Montreal with Omar's younger brother. They took Omar to restaurants and were friendly. They made many appeals to Omar to come home. They offered him money. They implied that if he didn't return with them to the kingdom, there would be consequences. They insisted he at least go with them to the Saudi consulate, where a new passport would be waiting.
6: He made these secret recordings of their meetings and shared them with
0: CNN.
1: We have come
5: to you with a message from Mohammed bin Salman. I want you to be reassured.
1: Omar texted a friend, a fellow Saudi living in exile. Should he go? I wouldn't trust them, the friend replied. That friend was Jamal Khashoggi. Omar did not go to the Saudi consulate.
3: Khashoggi had initiated a friendship with Omar after he left Saudi Arabia. Omar was in a similar situation to Khashoggi, living in the West, speaking out on Saudi politics. Their friendship grew, they started to communicate regularly, and then they decided to collaborate. I was
4: working with Jamal in some different projects. We
3: were working on other uh, short
4: documentaries, and also we were working to do some things for the activists who've been imprisoned in Saudi Arabia.
1: Shortly after Khashoggi moved to the United States, the new Saudi Crown Prince made a bold move to assert his control over Saudi media. He rounded up Saudi media tycoons, placing hundreds of people under hotel arrest at the Riyadh Four Seasons. The choice was simple. Pledge allegiance or force over assets. In some cases, both. Here's Jamal Khashoggi commenting on the Crown Prince's dual effort to consolidate media and purge corruption. In my career as a journalist, an editor, I called for everything Mohammed bin Salman is doing right now. Not only me, every other Saudi writers, commentator, we all wanted us to be free from radicalism. We all wanted women to be allowed to have their rights to drive. We all wanted to purge on corruption because corruption was killing us in Saudi Arabia and we the Saud. And, And corruption is no secret in Saudi Arabia. We feel it, we see it every day. But we just simply cannot report about it. So he is doing... What we demanded of him to do. So why am I being critical? Simply because he is doing the right things the wrong way. Very wrong way.
4: We were talking about some projects aiming the trolls
3: in Twitter. Khashoggi pledged $30,000 to invest in an operation he and Omar called The Bees. An organized group of dissenters brave enough to post to Twitter and across other social media. Omar would use the money to buy SIM cards so people could tweet without being easily traced. Over WhatsApp, Khashoggi admitted to Omar his personal opinions about the crown prince.
1: He is like a beast, like Pac-Man. The more victims he eats, the more he wants. Khashoggi's criticisms of the crown prince in private had a very different tone than that of his diplomatic columns in the Washington Post. Khashoggi and Omar went to great lengths to keep their ongoing conversation secret. Around the same time, Bill Marzak and Ron Deibert at Citizen Lab noticed unusual activity. Do you remember when you first heard of Omar Abdulaziz?
3: Absolutely. Citizen Lab could see that there was an active Pegasus target in Canada.
8: We couldn't say whose devices were hacked, but we were able to isolate the Saudi client Saudi Arabia as a customer, and all of the countries within which it was undertaking espionage. Within that finding, there was one infected device in Canada. We didn't know whose it was. Obviously, being based in Canada, this was of great interest to us. We were aware that at this time, exactly at this time, Canadian government was in a dispute with Saudi Arabia. So this was pretty interesting to us. Wow, okay, we've discovered Saudi Arabia is spying on somebody in Canada. Who might it be? What we did at that point was develop a short list of likely Saudi targets in Canada as best we could,
2: and Bill literally went door to door. I'm not kidding you. If we see a device in in Montreal that it looks like the Saudi client is targeting, well, we don't, you know, look up our list of criminals and terrorists because we don't have that list. But I think their main concern is uh, threats to the power of of the the government or threats to the monarchy.
8: And Omar was definitely on that list because he was very high profile. He had a YouTube show that was viewed by many hundreds of thousands of people and a very popular Twitter account. When we reached out to him, we were able to verify very easily that he was the target. Because, A, we looked through his text messages and saw that he received an SMS message in June that was embedded with a link to NSO's command and control infrastructure. But even more so, his movements, his pattern of life, matched exactly what we could see in our network scanning. So recall that I said we we had this visibility of infected devices. We could see that there was... This device that was hacked was in the Quebec area, in a suburb of Montreal called Sherbrooke, and would follow a pattern pretty consistently. In daytime, it would check in from one ISP, in the evening from a completely different one. When we asked Omar about his daily routine, he was a student at a university in Sherbrooke. It was summertime, classes weren't in session. He would log in from his home in the daytime, but then every evening go to the gym and log into this obscure ISP for this small university. Based on that together, we could confidently say that Omar was the target.
4: I had no idea about it till I got a phone call from Bill Marzak. So he was telling me that your phone might be hacked. He told me basically that we believe that the Saudi government has targeted someone in Kobach. So I directly told him, you know... If they're going to target someone, it's going to be me. We said, no, no, that's not gonna... We
6: have to confirm that.
8: So we discovered this in August and published a report October 1st. What we didn't know was that Omar and Jamal were friends. We had no idea about that until the next day, after our report on Omar is published October 1st, the very next day, Jamal goes missing. Omar says, I'm freaking out. Jamal has gone missing. And we're like, Jamal, who? You know, of course, we see the news and put two and two together, learned that Omar and Jamal had been in regular close communications. Um, So that turned it into a whole other thing. Uh, You know, it became something much different than what we thought it would be.
3: You know, you were in contact with Omar. He was friends with Khashoggi. After he figured out What happened? What what was his reaction?
8: Well, first and foremost, we were concerned with Omar's well being. We have that responsibility, and with the spotlight on him around this, there was a lot of attention. I would say that was a primary concern. Um, But then also figuring out, oh my goodness, you know, he's he's connected to this person. Learning about some of the details there as the weeks went by was really quite something because. You know, I learned that prior to us warning Omar and alerting him to the fact that his phone was hacked, they had exchanged on a daily basis all of these very provocative WhatsApp messages between them, organizing resistance, collective resistance against Mohammed bin Salman. They also asked Omar to come to the Saudi embassy in Canada, in Ottawa, And Omar asked Jamal, do you think I should do this? And Jamal Khashoggi said, I wouldn't trust them. So Omar didn't go to the Saudi embassy in Ottawa, but for some reason Jamal thought he wouldn't be threatened if he went to the consulate in Istanbul. Um, So we learned a lot of details like that about their interactions.
3: Here's Omar in an interview
4: with CNN. It's really difficult to explain what, what happened to Jamal. And here's the thing, you know, they did that to Jamal. They tried to do the same thing to me. Nothing is going to happen in Saudi Arabia without a green light from MBS. That's why we have to tell the whole world what really happened to Jamal Khashoggi.
8: It's not uncommon for victims of this type of espionage to be both traumatized and to feel guilt. There have been some studies done by colleagues of ours who have actually gone out Psychologists, clinical psychologists who've interviewed people who've been targets of surveillance and discovered that, you know, things like people who had experienced torture and then fled abroad but had their device hacked would have PTSD re-triggered or they would feel very guilt-ridden about learning that the fact that their phone was hacked exposed their entire inner circle who maybe were either arrested or murdered. And I would say the same with Omar. He he definitely has experienced feelings of, of guilt and trauma, and, and that's why he has been so outspoken, as I understand it.
4: Maybe they, they were listening to every single call that we had. They were listening, they were reading our chat.
1: After Omar realized that his phone was hacked, he thought of the thousands of people from all over the world and within Saudi Arabia who reached out to him, either through encrypted means or via direct message, thinking that what they're writing him is private and protected.
4: In every single minute, so many people are contacting me via my Instagram, my Snapchat, my Twitter account.
8: So now they
4: are in real danger because of that.
1: And do we know if Jamal Khashoggi's phone was also hacked by Pegasus?
8: Unfortunately, we can't say one way or another because he passed his phones to his fiance, and then she handed them over to Turkish authorities. I would be shocked if he weren't, given his high profile and the, the methods of Saudi intelligence. I, I would be shocked if they didn't try to target his device or successfully hacked it. We just don't know, though.
1: We can only guess as to why Turkey has never released Jamal Khashoggi's phones. But what we do know is how Ron and Bill at Citizen Lab discovered Pegasus.
8: You have to go back to, I would say, all the way back to Ahmed Mansour and us, you know, getting a copy of Pegasus.
1: That's
0: after the break. This is what I'm talking about. Every layer. Every twist and turn reveals a deeper thread. It's just wild how Citizen Lab was able to find Omar Abdulaziz, and that was just months before Khashoggi's murder. There were hundreds of text messages between Khashoggi and Abdulaziz that were compromised. Hundreds. And it might have been these very texts that made the Saudi government see Khashoggi as more of a threat, but we'll never know. All right, let's get back to the second episode of Shoot the Messenger. Chapter 2. Discovering Pegasus. Ahmed Mansour.
1: Often referred to as the last human rights defender of the United Arab Emirates, Ahmed Mansour has been leading a decade-long fight calling out human rights abuses of his government. Ahmed Mansour has been intimidated by the Emirati government in various ways. He's been detained. He's been beaten. His bank accounts have been frozen and emptied. He was stripped of his right to work as an engineer, his passport has been taken away, and he wasn't allowed to leave the country. And he has been targeted with spyware on his computer and even his baby monitor. So when he got a suspicious text, he knew to reach out to Bill at Citizen Lab.
2: So this was actually in the summer of 2016, and it was uh, right before I was going to sleep here in Berkeley. I got a text from Ahmed Mansour, A UAE activist.
7: Ahmed Mansour in the UAE who had been pretty vocal about expanding voting rights.
3: Nicole Perlroth has written a book about the cyber industry called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends. She has been covering cybersecurity for The New York Times for the past decade.
7: I'd worked closely with people like Bill Marksack at Citizen Lab, covering some of the spyware that was turning up on the phones of people like Ahmed Mansour,
8: He had been previously targeted with spyware, and we had
2: done a report on him a few years earlier to try to get inside his computers. What was interesting about this text in 2016 is that it appeared to be a link that was sent to his mobile phone promising new secrets about torture of detainees in in UAE prisons. It was kind of odd because it was from an unknown number. So I had this burner phone set up, and I was monitoring the phone's internet traffic, so I was seeing everything that came into the phone and that left the phone. And when I tapped on the link in uh, in Safari on the iPhone, uh, the, the phone sort of just like started spinning for a while. You know, uh, looked like it was loading something. And then the really interesting thing: Safari just closed, and that was kind of unusual. And then I saw when I was monitoring the internet traffic a bunch of weird traffic going to the Spyro website. Like it was downloading stuff, it was uploading stuff. Uh, And that was sort of the first key that, oh, wow, Safari's closed, but this, this, this connectivity is still happening and it's sending information back.
1: Bill was seeing something that is referred to as the beauty of Pegasus. It identifies a vulnerability in the operating system and then overwhelms the system to worm its way in. Think of your smartphone as a protected castle. Pegasus will overwhelm Safari, or, let's say, call WhatsApp several times in a row. It does something that distracts your phone's defenses for just a moment while it tricks it into lowering the castle's drawbridge to get inside.
2: It wasn't just, you know, oh, well you can see what's going on in Safari because uh, you clicked on the link at Safari. No, it was you can access everything on the phone. You can turn on the microphone to snoop in on conversations happening around the device. You can take pictures through the webcam. You can get passwords. You can get WhatsApp messages. You can get signal messages. You can record calls. You can track GPS. You can do other things with the, with the phone sensors. It was full access to the phone. I'd never seen that before on a phone. It was quite, quite surprising.
3: Full access to the phone. And more than that, Pegasus allows a hacker to use your phone in ways that you can't even use it. It can search, explore, store, save, and copy information the way we use a computer. It's like the ultimate James Bond toy, being able to turn on the microphone and eavesdrop on your conversations, or turn on your camera and watch you, wherever you are. It can track all your movements, observe all your keystrokes, learn all your passwords. But how is it possible someone can break into your phone in such an invasive way?
2: Zero Day is an exploit. And what that means is it's some code that takes advantage of a flaw in your phone or your computer or another device. So that, in other words, this is a flaw, for instance, in your iPhone that Apple doesn't know about, but some hacker knows about.
1: Pegasus hacks your phone with a new kind of exploit technology.
2: This I think was the first ever example talked about in public of a what's called a zero-day remote jailbreak. So not only was it a zero-day, in other words it could infect the latest iPhone, but it was a remote jailbreak, meaning it gave full access to the phone.
1: Once Pegasus worms its way through your phone, it can disable the Apple or Android automatic system updates yeah, those annoying system updates are usually full of new code that patches or fixes any of the vulnerabilities the makers discover. And Pegasus works hard to stay on your phone without you ever knowing it.
2: One of the interesting developments in recent years has been the professionalization of the exploit industry. In other words, the people who are finding these bugs are no longer, you know, uh, necessarily in their in their uh, mother's basement. But they are, you know, making six-figure salaries, perhaps former employees of intelligence services going into the private sector.
1: The business model of the cyber spyware company is based entirely in mining ways to break into iPhones and Androids. That is the backbone of their technology. It's what supports their business. And it's what their clients are paying top dollar to have.
7: So, yeah, we're in this cat cat and mouse race that we've always been in insecurity. You know, the good guys come up with the defense and then the bad guys come up with a way to exploit that defense. Pegasus is constantly evolving.
1: The engineers who make it are always finding new vulnerabilities to hack into Apple and Android software. And Pegasus also has a kind of self-destruct mode if certain conditions are present.
3: Now that Bill Marzak had access to Pegasus infrastructure, he started to dig around.
1: There were a bunch
2: of uh, references in the spyware's code to Pegasus. So that was our first clue. Uh, So the second clue was the server that was used to distribute the spyware. So obviously you tap on the link, your web browser navigates to that server in the link. So basically we fingerprinted the behavior of that server. Uh, So we found out which ones behaved in exactly the same way as the one in the link. Uh, that was sent to Ahmed Mansour that we got the spyware from. And we were ultimately able to find 150, I think more than 150 of these servers, uh, and some of them were connected back to NSO Group. They had been registered by NSO Group.com. In
1: 2016, there were only a couple of big-name firms like Hacking Team, based in Italy, or FinFisher, based in Germany, publicly advertising this kind of sophisticated spyware to government entities. Both received scrutiny as private companies selling military-grade spyware to the highest bidder. But
7: the NSO group? And then one day, I had a source come to my house, and then he opened up his screen and said, take pictures of my screen, print these out delete any evidence of it from your phone, and take a look at what this is. It became very clear that all these documents that were sitting on my kitchen counter were marketing materials belonging to NSO Group.
3: Nicole started to research the NSO Group. And back at Citizen Lab, Bill was learning more about the Pegasus digital infrastructure. One thing that Bill noticed about the domains Pegasus used was that they were eerily similar to legitimate institutions. Like one was a few letters different from the domains used by the Red Cross or from Al Jazeera News. By finding these domains, Bill and Ron were able to get some more insight into the company making Pegasus.
8: So all spyware has to send data over the internet. If I hack into your devices, I need to grab the data and send it somewhere NSO has a infrastructure of command and control servers, some of which are on customer's premises, some of which are in the cloud, but it all, all of that infrastructure has a certain signature, if you will, or signatures in the way that the spyware communicates. And once we reverse engineered it, we started to get a good sense of how it all looks. So you're kind of scanning the internet, You know, looking at how computers respond to certain queries, like knocking on doors.
1: Citizen Lab discovered that the IP addresses matched the fingerprint to 237 servers linking Pegasus to the NSO group. Now that Citizen Lab had NSO's number, literally, they could watch them. And they did. And this process of reverse engineering Pegasus Bill also had a front row seat to observing how NSO clients were using
0: Pegasus. That's after the break. Hey, prestige heads, Danny here. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Shoot the Messenger. Now, Rose and Nando continue in their investigation in Pegasus. And in upcoming episodes, the series will dive into the origin story behind the company that makes Pegasus, the rise and demise of this Israeli tech cyber war unicorn, and even explore how Pegasus is being used as a diplomacy chip in Israel's increasingly complicated international relationships. It's like a Russian doll. Every episode goes deeper and deeper. All right, let's get back to the second episode of Shoot the Messenger.
1: At Citizen Lab, Bill Marzak was investigating the Pegasus infrastructure. He learned that he could filter by individual clients. And as NSO clients are countries, Bill could isolate a single country's list of targets.
2: And I think, you know, by volume, the biggest sources of activity we see are some of these Middle Eastern governments. Maybe there's some terrorists they're going after, but I think their main concern is threats to the power of the government or threats to the monarchy."
3: Back at the New York Times, Nicole Perlroth had to decide if she would write about the NSO group. But she had been burned before. Exposing cyber war companies didn't hurt them. It often helped their business.
7: Basically, I was helping them advertise their product to a number of governments. So I didn't want to do the same with NSO. So I waited until there was a clear cut case of abuse. In the meantime, I started asking around about NSO Group. And I was in the middle of that process when I got the call from Lookout and Citizen Lab that once again, Ahmed stores phones had been basically tapped with a new form of spyware that they had traced back to NSO Group. So here I was with all these documents still littered across my kitchen counter. And I, I knew that was the moment to start putting it all together.
1: A year after Bill discovered Pegasus on Ahmed Mansour's phone, Ahmed was arrested by UAE officials. A group of 10 uniformed police officers raided the Mansour family home in the middle of the night. All of the family's phones and laptops Even devices belonging to their children were confiscated. Ahmed Mansour was taken to an undisclosed location.
0: He's hard to see amid all the commotion. Ahmed Mansour... UN rights experts, the European Parliament, US Congress members,
8: Nobel Prize winners, well-known authors, all condemned the imprisonment and treatment of Ahmed Mansour by
3: the UAE.
1: I was with Ahmed Mansour. He's not allowed to read.
3: For a year, Ahmed's family did not know where he was, and he was not allowed to see a lawyer. In May 2018, Ahmed Mansour was sentenced to 10 years in prison for defaming the UAE on social media.
7: The stress is very real, and sometimes you forget it because the mission feels so important. There is not a day that goes by I don't think about Ahmed Mansour and don't want to scream. You know, he is sitting in solitary confinement sitting in a digital prison for a very long time.
3: Around the world, Ahmed Mansour is considered an inspiring activist, but his government considers him an enemy of the state.
1: A year after Citizen Lab published the report, and Nicole published her article in the New York Times, she started getting weird messages.
7: So it was actually pretty scary because... I started covering NSO Group in The Times, and then we started getting calls. I started getting calls, and our Mexico bureau chief, Azam Ahmed, started getting calls from a series of people in Mexico who seemed like very random targets.
8: Yeah, so Mexican government agencies appear to be one of the top clients for NSO in terms of government clients, even on the basis of targeting. We could say that it was really quite shocking
7: they said i've been reading your stories about nso and i believe that i might have nso spyware on my phone and it turns out that yes all of these people had pegasus on their phone what they had in common these were really random some of them were nutritionists some of them were consumer rights activists some were doctors
8: Health scientists and researchers who were working on putting a tax on sugary beverages to reduce consumption, they were targeted.
7: So by this point, I knew Mexico was an NSO client. It's one of Coca-Cola's biggest customer bases. They have large market share in Mexico. So clearly, someone in government was getting kickbacks from the soda industry or didn't want to see the soda tax passed. And Azam and I put that story together and that led to more stories and we broke that story in the times. I would have to say that of anything I've covered, that generated the biggest response. People in Mexico took to the streets, they took to Twitter, here in the United States even. But for days, I was getting a lot of incoming text messages. Mine were, check out this article. With a link. You're going to want to see this with a link. But they were all from unknown numbers. And by then I knew better than to click on any links, <laughs> even if they're from my husband. I got very paranoid about clicking on any links or, or attachments.
8: So, really, quite a a kind of epidemic of targeting in Mexico. But, you know, when you add it all up, it's like probably the most extreme the best example of abuse using commercial spyware from our research.
3: NSO Group, the Israeli tech company that makes this spyware, says that they only deal with vetted government actors who use this technology to target criminals and terrorists. But our investigation shows that this technology is often misused.
5: Cyber weapons are being used to wage a war against individuals now not just against banking systems or hospital systems or a country's power grid or, you know, a country's computer system. But now it's me and you because we all have these damn cell phones that are vulnerable and because our laws have not caught up in any way to the weapons themselves. It's Big Brother sitting on top of all these societies that are in an active battle for their political future. Even if you're not surveilled, but you think everyone is, that changes your behavior. The circle of people that we now know were infected by Pegasus is five times greater than the ones that we absolutely knew when we wrote the stories. NSO's market is larger than we thought in the beginning.
1: Is the NSO group? And how did they come to make Pegasus? NSO was selling for tens of millions.
8: I was wondering if you guys can get into a device without asking for permission.
3: It's not NSO. It's the clients of NSO. You have to target the wife of, the widow of, the daughter, the secretary. We knew that something was happening that was uh, extremely bad. But uh, <laughs> from the first
6: customer, we know that there was abuse in the system.
1: That's on the next episode of Shoot the Messenger.
3: Shoot the Messenger is a production of Exile Content Studio. We are distributed by PRX. Hosted by me, Nando Vila, and Rose Reed. Produced by Rose Reed, Sabine Jansen, Nora Kipnis, and Ana Isabel Octavio. Written by Rose Reed, with story editing by myself, Nando Vila, and Gail Reed. Production assistance by Álvaro Céspedes and Andrea Ceballos. Daniel Batista oversees audio at Exile Content Studios. Sound design and mixing by Pachi Quiñones. Executive producers are myself, Nando Vila, along with Rose Reed, Carmen Graterol, and Isaac Lee. For more information on the status of journalists and freedom of the press, visit the Committee to Protect Journalists at cpj.org. To learn more about Exile, our other podcasts and films, visit exilecontent.com.
0: Now, that was just a taste of the new podcast, Shoot the Messenger. There's so much more to this story, and Rose and Nando, I think, at least, really do a fantastic job of connecting all the reporting about Pegasus and putting it together into one streamlined story. Now, the next episode, the third episode of Shoot the Messenger, takes us behind the scenes of the creation of the NSO group. In some ways, it follows the typical tech founder myth a couple of high school buddies start a small business and stumble onto something bigger than they ever could have imagined. But considering the work they do, selling software to governments around the world that allows these governments access to every aspect of someone's phone, it feels much more sinister than your classic capitalist fable. And it's a story you don't want to miss. To make sure you get the episode straight to your phone, make sure to subscribe to Shoot the Messenger today. And as always, you can find Shoot the Messenger anywhere that you get podcasts.